Welcome to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. This week, we'll take an in-depth look at the election results in the city of Seattle. A new mayor, a new city attorney, and a new approach to dealing with street crime and the homeless crisis. Plus, Republicans eke out a win in the Democratic stronghold of Virginia. An interview with President Trump's number one enemy, the Secretary of State for Georgia during the 2020 election, and remembering Colin Powell. But first, I'm joined by Matt Markovich. And well, Matt, we've had the election this past week, and it seems that Seattle has shifted a little bit more towards the moderate end of things, or at least rejected extreme progressivism by the people that they elected. Yeah, so we're just a little, just a little less left than of center. Yeah, it seems that way. I mean, a little more moderate push. Um, and if you consider that all the council members and what could happen with the Shama Swan's recall election, you, there's a real chance there could be a voting block of four moderates on the Seattle City Council if uh, Shama Swan gets recalled and a moderate takes her place. And we saw the extreme progressives in Lorena Gonzalez and in Nicole Thomas Kennedy and those not only get defeated on election night, but they were soundly defeated. I mean, these were landslide elections. They, they were. They really were. I mean, uh, Bruce Harrell, even though people had said on the election night, oh, it's, there's still votes to count. But uh, I went back and took a look since the state of Washington went to mail-in ballots in t- 2005. I could not find a race where anybody came back from a, even a 20-point deficit, let alone a 30-point deficit. And you know, it could possibly happen in a citywide uh, district election in the city, but this is a citywide election. So the, the, it was a resounding win by Bruce Harrell and some of the moderates. And, and I think what by Harrell winning, if you want to start talking about the mayor's race first, um, Bruce Harrell will bring to something to the city, uh, to the mayor's office that it hasn't had since the days of Norm Rice. And that is an actual council member that's mayor. Norm Rice in 1990 was elected as mayor, was a three-term mayor, and he came from the city council. After that, the, the progression of mayors, uh, followed up by uh, uh, Paul Schell, Greg Nichols, who was just a legislative aide and went to King County Council and came from there. Then you have Mike McGinn and then Ed Murray through the state and Mayor Durkin, who was not never had political office. All these mayors were never served on the city council. So I think first off with Bruce Harrell running the city, he has a really good connection to the city council and its workings even was part of the current city council and knew the political tailwinds and headwinds that the council was dealing with when he was on the council, even as council president. Now, the same could be said for Lorena Gonzalez. She was, she's could say the same, but Bruce Harrell brings a more moderate tone to the helm of the city. Like mayor Durkin was supposed to be considered a moderate, but Bruce Harrell has some political chops. He's been doing this for so long. He could possibly get some stuff, done and maybe not have an adversarial relationship like Mayor Durkin has had with the city council. What do you make of the margin of victory? Because we all kind of thought it was going to be relatively close between Harold and Gonzalez, but he trounced her. He did. Um, and again, we don't know whether it was those peripheral precincts throughout the city, you know, pretty much, you know, the, the precincts that border any kind of water, are more of uh, higher income districts. And he, in the primary, had basically captured those districts. And uh, Lorena Gonzalez had the internal precincts, the inner city part of it. 
it'll be interesting to see how those precincts went this time around in the general election for Bruce Harrell, maybe voters who had uh, picked uh, Lorena Gonzalez in the primary in those internal city districts maybe went for Bruce Harrell. Here's an interesting question, though. Did Bruce Harrell win or did Lorena Gonzalez lose? Because she was pushing a rather extreme narrative in, in how she would handle the homeless crisis, allowing homeless encampments to to remain on public property despite some of their dangers. And she ran that rather controversial ad towards the end of it. But I don't think she was, I mean, of course you want to win to be mayor, but I don't think she was in it to say whatever it took to become mayor. She doesn't come across as that kind of person. She has principles. She stick to her guns on what she said about police uh, reforms, about the homeless this, which were obviously the two and crime. And those were the those were the top topics uh, in this particular general election. She stuck to her gun. So I don't think it was her race that she lost. I mean, you had a kind of a fumble at the at the one yard line in the end with her her campaign ad. But other than that, and I think I think that may have some play in that, but I don't really think it did. I think people had made up their minds before that uh, last second stumble. Uh, who was going to be mayor in their minds. And people clearly went for Bruce Harrell. So I don't think Lorena Gonzalez lost it. And clearly the biggest issue was homelessness. Yes, homelessness and street crime. I mean, those were in every poll that came out, uh, even in the primary, and even more so prior to the general election, homelessness and crime were one, two, bang, bang, in any almost every poll that you looked at. So those were the top, hot topics. And, you know, give the candidate some credit um, they they separated themselves. And so you really had two people with two different philosophies toward those two top two top topics, and the voters had to actually a clear choice. So that's why you can maybe really read more into this election of where the, the consciousness of the city of Seattle is in terms of its mayoral leadership. And again, this is the position that oversees the entire city. District city council races are a little bit different. It's just that neighborhood that's voting for that particular city council member. And we all know each neighborhood in the city of Seattle is very different. Uh, the, the the Rainier Valley is very different from Magnolia. And I can't help but look back to the city council elections of 2019. You know, every sense we had, the momentum going into it was that things were going to shift towards a more moderate direction. Then Amazon obviously dumped a lot of money in. That was a huge stumble. And then the city uh, elections went the other way. That didn't happen this time. It didn't. And, you know, people talked about that 2019 election with Shama Swan when the first ballot drop came out and she was down uh, eight points. They thought, oh, she's not going to be able to come back. You know, and, you know, we were just I was just talking about how Harold had a 30 point lead and people are thinking, oh, there might be a chance for Lorena Gonzalez to come back. No, that wasn't the case. But in, in Shama Swan's circumstance, she had it. She was down eight points and came back to win by four points. So she had a 12 point swing as the ballots continue to be counted. So she has a good ground game on that. Um, and I think you can't, under, you can't underestimate that kind of uh, political savvy she has with some of her followers to get, uh, to get her movement across the finish line in terms of her own case. I think as you reflect back on the 2019 election as, and now two years later, there, a lot has happened in the city of Seattle in those two years. You had COVID, you had the protests, and you had this real focus on, on um, uh, repeat offenders, homelessness, issues that don't seem to the to the naked eye that were addressed on the street. You just have to look at the homelessness. You just have to 
see uh, the crime, people seeing watching crime taking place as they walk down the city of Seattle, uh, any city in Seattle. So that visible aspect was much clearer than it was in 2019. And, and finally, with Bruce Harrell being elected, how do you think that changes? I think it's going to provide that cooperation uh, with the city of uh, the city council. That's first off. I think that, you know, he is a, he is one of the master politicians uh, in our in our in our generation right now in the city of Seattle. He knows how to work a crowd. He knows how to mediate things. It's a question what, what kind of leadership he'll provide uh, that people say has been lacking over the last several mayors. Um, Bruce Harrell will have that unique relationship as being president of the city council, knowing how the budget process goes through and how the city council right now is going through its budget process that he's going to inherit. He knows what it takes to, to work with the city council. Um, and so I'm really looking forward to seeing, not necessarily mean in a positive sense, just looking to see how he uses that relationship he has with the city council, knowing how that works to see if he can drive some of his uh, initiatives past the finish line and not get a, uh, the Heisman, so to speak, from the city council like Mayor Durkin did. <laughs> All right, uh, we have to take a quick break, but Matt, don't go anywhere. When we come back, we'll talk more about the other races that were on the ballot, including that very contentious race for city attorney when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela, joined as almost always by Matt Markovich, and we're talking about the elections that were held this past week in the city of Seattle. We talked about the mayor's race in the last segment, but... One of the more contentious races on the ballot was that for city attorney. Now, most people don't know what the city attorney does, nor do they really care. Not really a high-profile job. What the city attorney does is provide legal advice to the city and is the chief criminal prosecutor for misdemeanor crimes that happen in municipal court, or that at least are referred to municipal court. Any serious crimes, felonies, go to the county. But this race was a particularly contentious one with attorney Pete Holmes, city attorney Pete Holmes being ousted in the primary, Ann Davison, a Republican, along with Nicole Thomas-Kennedy, a, a progressive by all means, uh, moving forward to the general election. Now, Ann Davison came out and really blew out Nicole Thomas-Kennedy with a landslide victory. And Matt, why is that? How often do we see Republicans get elected in the city of Seattle? Well, it was that word, abolitionist. I mean, she. Uh, we're talking about Nicole Thomas-Kennedy here. When she came out and progressed uh, said that she was an abolitionist basically wants to abolish the criminal justice system as we know it i mean that's an extreme view uh, even if you're a progressive you're gonna say hmm, let me think about twice about that even though i i think i believe in police reforms uh then there needs to be and i think it's universally agreed that needs to be ha that needs to take place and that the criminal justice system may be broken when it comes to repeat offenders I mean, that's what happened to uh, Pete Holmes. Uh, it was the issue of repeat offenders is one of the issues that was uh, voters took voted him out of office, basically, on how he handled people who are always come back to um, petty crime, like shoplifting, small amounts of theft. Um, you're convicted for 75 times that you're still allowed to go on the street. Um, how is the city attorney going to handle those cases going forward? And I think that's the real question that was in front of voters uh, for city attorney. Again, like you said, a race that people wouldn't even care, wouldn't think twice about in previous years. But this year it was different because it's all tied in with homelessness and street crime issues in the city of Seattle. Those one, two, like we talked about, the homelessness and street crime 
were the one, two issues here. And so that played a role in the city attorney's race. So when you have Nicole Thomas Kennedy, who comes from the public defender background, saying that she has leanings toward abolishing the criminal justice system and going after the root causes of crime, which I think most people support. I mean, not the abolishment, but the going after the root causes of crime. Um, that was just too extreme. And so you have Ann Davidson, who was painted as a Republican, once was a Democrat, um, and she has just more of a, well, let's let's try and get the criminals off the street approach. Uh, not a criminal justice attorney uh, by background, but having that approach like, OK, you can't just abolish the criminal justice system. You can't get rid of the jails. You can't. We don't have any mechanism to do that. now. So people went for so-called Republican and Davison over the abolitionist Nicole Thomas Kennedy. And that was the reason. How much of this, though, is coming from Dan Satterberg and the county prosecutor? Because when a serious crime happens, felonies, they go to his office. A lot mm. of the time, though, he will decline to charge as a felony and instead kick it down to misdemeanor court and municipal court. And the city then mm -hmm. has to handle that. I think that plays a role to some extent. Now we're getting a little <clears throat> deeper into the weeds here about the, the key issues about criminal justice in King County and the city of Seattle and including the police force and who they arrest and charge with crimes. Um, you know, Dan Satter, like you said, Dan Satterberg has that decision where he feels like it's not a felony, but more of a, a gross misdemeanor and the city attorney, not just in the city of Seattle, but other city attorneys like uh, in, in Bellevue and, and, and other larger cities that have the city attorney. Um, those those cases by Dan Satterberg's decision to bump it down, I think, play some extent, but not the major role of criminal prosecution here. It's the cases of uh, of the small street crime that the com people complain that the police aren't even investigating the theft. Um, we're not talking bodily injury crime. You know, it's that they, that does get people do get jailed for that. It's the car theft. Um the, the the purse snatching, uh, the shoplifting, the urinating in public, uh, a constant battle with people who are living on some public sidewalk and breaking windows of some business. Um, those are the crimes that the city attorney would tend to handle. And Pete Holmes uh, was trying to uh, create ways and wants to create ways. And I think a lot of law enforcement do wants to do the same to go after the root causes of what, why these people are doing that. But they, they just didn't have the mechanism to have that in place uh, at the time. Uh, right now, we don't have those mechanisms to put people into diversion programs. There are some, but not to the scale that's needed. And so what you had is people, you know, Dan Satterberg wants to bump a crime down to the city attorney's office. And the city attorney is now obligated to prosecute that crime. And then maybe he, they decide, no, I'm not going to prosecute it. We're going to let that person go. And it's a culmination of this lack of, well, we're not holding anybody accountable. Um, that was a prevailing feeling and why the city attorney's race was so prominent in this particular election. Uh, Nicole Thomas Kennedy, as we talked about, didn't want to prosecute many of those crimes, whether they were kicked down from the county prosecutor or not. And the other thing that, that she did was those those rather incendiary tweets of hers that came out uh, last year during the uh, the riots on Capitol Hill. 
very inflammatory directed at uh, police. I remember asking her several times directly, do you apologize for those tweets? She refused. How much do you think that played a role? I think it did play a role. And that happened at a time when people were still making a decision on who they may vote for city attorney. I think at, even at that time, when the polls were saying who's winning, it was something like 75 or two thirds of the uh, people polled still had not made a decision on who's going to be the city attorney. You know, I mean, it's such because it was such a, a race that no one really follows uh, on a mainstream level for in a city and people were undecided. But so when those when the press hit that came out with all those tweets that were very derogatory and hurt Nicole Thomas Kennedy, I do believe that played a role. And I think that maybe brought attention to the race. And then when people took that very next step and did just the, I hate to say it, a kind of a stereotypical placement in their mind as, well, who is Nicole Thomas Kennedy versus Ann Davidson? And you heard the word abolitionist, and that's what did her in. All right, we have to take another quick break. But when we come back, we'll talk more about those city council races that were on the ballots. And when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Bojla, still joined by Matt Markovich. We're talking about the elections that uh, happened this past Tuesday. And, well, the, the one progressive that seemed to come out with a victory was that of Teresa Mosqueda. She is city council position number eight, elected at large. She was uh, up against Kenneth Wilson, an engineer by trade, a, a newcomer to the political arena. And uh, she eked out a bit of a victory. On election night, it was about five points. Uh, rather small compared to the other election victories that we saw on on the night, but she's the only progressive in the city of Seattle to win. And I think it says something that her victory is narrower than what happened with Sarah Nelson, Nikita Oliver, but first with Teresa Mosqueda, Kenneth Wilson, a guy with no political experience um, coming out of nowhere and basically, you know, just a couple percentage points behind Teresa Mosqueda, who has become a veteran politician and pretty much one of the more well-known city council members uh, in terms of the public's eyes. I think that that race is much tighter than I expected. I expected to Teresa Mosqueda to win by a landslide. But again, I think that's the hangover effect of what's happened over the last year. Uh, her as the chair of the public safety committee, her being very on the front lines of the protests, uh, standing in front of the police department on those lines near the East Precinct, um, also coming out in support of a defunding police by 50%. And everybody, everybody, again, everyone is talking about police reform on both sides, whether no matter how you look at anything, people always want to talk about police reform and people support that. But the just the hashing of the, the whacking of a budget for political reasons, people did not like. And so I think people tied her to that. Still, she won. I mean, she's a veteran politician now. Um, she's likable uh, as opposed to others, maybe on the city council. Uh, so I think that's why she has her seat again. And it's a very important seat because she's currently the head of the budget. And that's such a key. Uh, she's the chair of the budget uh, committee. And that's such a key position in the city of Seattle. Well, it's been said that money can't buy you an election, but a lack of money can buy you a loss. How much of that was a factor here with Kenneth Wilson? Because most people, I would think, when they went to the ballot box, didn't really have any idea who he was. That's right. I think it's a count to vote against the establishment. He was an anti-establishment vote. Um, I think, in a way, it was a 
anti-Muscata vote to vote for Kenneth Wilson because someone who, with uh, like you said, has not much money to spend on a campaign and a newcomer uh, from nowhere uh, getting that much of a vote, um, that's surprising. Well, it almost seemed like Teresa Mosqueda lost support. She won the primary with over 60% of the vote, but in the general, when there were only two, she had 52% on election night. Yeah. Again, it's it's an anti-Mosqueda vote. A pro-Kenneth Wilson vote was maybe your for what he stood for, but it was more maybe uh, it'd be interesting if we ever had exit polling at, at the city council level, which we really don't here at the city of Seattle when you ask people why they voted for Kenneth Wilson versus Teresa Mosqueda. And again, this is a citywide district. So this is the two at-large positions were up for grabs in this election, which meant that anybody, everybody who could vote in the city of Seattle had a chance to vote for these two city council members, either Teresa Mosqueda, Kenneth Wilson versus Sarah Nelson and Nikita Oliver. You had your choice there. Anybody in the city. It wasn't a district-specific election, which makes a big difference, I think, because there are real regional and neighborhood issues in a district election and how a pre- previous incumbent voted. And that incumbent can be ousted pretty quickly in a district election. A citywide election, not so much, because a lot of people just like to keep maintain and vote for the incumbent. And you mentioned that other uh, citywide race, and that was uh, position number nine, the one vacated by Lorena Gonzalez as she ran for mayor. And Sarah Nelson, the owner of Fremont Brewing, she kind of ran away with it against Nikita Oliver. Yeah, and she's but she's a veteran. She's run for campaigns before and applied, tried to get city council and lost in the past. Nikita Oliver arguably could have had a much bigger name, but again, she publicly aligned herself with Nicole Thomas Kennedy and um, Lorena Gonzalez. This is the, the three were the more pres- clearly the more progressive block of votes. If you wanted to vote progressive in this particular election, you'd have to include Nikita Oliver on that. Nikita Oliver is very smart. She's very politically savvy. She knows what she's doing. Um, people may find some of her views extreme, but you know, she's a, uh, a very good voice in the city and I don't expect her to fade away at all uh, because just because she lost this uh, council race. Um, I think Sarah Nelson coming on board will uh, add obviously one more vote to the block of moderate votes on the city council. That includes Deborah Juarez and Alex Peterson. And if you want to go one more extreme, uh, well, who could replace Shama Swan if she gets recalled in this, in the December special election. And that could be a moderate. So you'd have four moderates on a council of nine. And, you know, we, we hark back just to what three, two years ago when it was basically one. You mentioned that you don't think Nikita Oliver is going to fade away, as it were. What about Lorena Gonzalez? Clearly, she has higher political ambitions. She ran for attorney general for a hot minute. Yeah, and I think she she bet the farm on this one. She gave up her what could be an easy win for her at the at-large seat and run for mayor. And, you know, I think even during her term, I, I included thought, well, if, if mayor Durkin steps down, she would be the next successor most likely to step into those shoes and win the general election. But then you had, then you had COVID, then you had the homelessness issue, and then you had the protests and defunding police, you know, which were, which wasn't on anybody's radar two years ago. And she basically made a stand 
and maybe was more a lot left than people thought she is. And now she will not have a position on the council. She gave that up to run for mayor and she won't have the job of mayor. She's an active civil rights leader, very uh, smart attorney uh, who had ambitions for, but has aspirations to be the attorney general. But when uh, Jay Inslee decided to run again, the dominoes didn't fall that way where everyone would move up a step in a way. I won't go through all of it, but that would be a step for her. Um, it would have been an attorney general from the mayor's office or excuse me, from city council. And she has a good track record of civil rights uh, decisions in her favor, which could appeal to a statewide electorate. So what do you make of the, the overall result of the election? Does Seattle shift uh, for want of a better description, more to the right, more towards the middle? I think if you're playing musical chairs and the chair was in the center, you know, you took a little step toward the chair. Uh, you're not all the way in the middle by any means, but you know, it's, I, I also think that the other council members, and I'm thinking about uh, Lisa Herbolt in the first district, uh, not so much with uh, uh, Shama Sawant or, or Tammy Morales in the second district. Um, you may have a council that might be, not be as active, be an activist. I mean, there's still talk on the council of creating a city income tax and also having rent control. Um, uh, so whether or not those votes will go forward in the next time they come around in front of the city council, that'll be interesting. It's still a progressive council. It's still a majority progressive council. Um, and you have a more of a moderate mayor, as we thought, with Mayor Durkin. She was a moderate, unknown politically, but we know for sure what Bruce Harrell is and whether or not he can navigate uh, a more favorable city council in his eyes, maybe uh, as a more moderate council with the recent changes in the political landscape. That'll be fun to watch. Well, I think, too, with the moderate in the mayor's office and you now have a, a larger moderate block of voters on the city council, they don't have a veto-proof majority anymore, they being the progressives, so they can't really run roughshod over a mayor anymore. That, that's right. That's right. And, um, you know, Mayor Durkin really didn't use her veto pen widely at all during her administration. She just didn't sign legislation. She just let it take effect. Um, so it'll be interesting how Bruce Harrell uh, sees a piece of legislation coming from the city council that he disagrees with and what he'll do with that. And then if he rejects it, what will the city council do? Will they will they kind of send legislation to his desk, knowing that they have maybe fewer or less votes that could override his veto? Uh, it'll be interesting. All right, Matt Markovich, thank you so much for your time and insight as always. You're welcome. Still to come, Republicans eke out a win in the Democratic stronghold of Virginia when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogelo. Well, it's been said Virginia is for lovers, but not so much if you're a Democrat, at least as a result of Tuesday night's election in which Terry McAuliffe lost to Glenn Youngkin, the Republican. It's the first time in a while that a Republican has taken the governorship in Virginia. And joining us now from Alexandria, Virginia, is none other than ABC's Andy Field. And a lot of hand-wringing, a lot of finger-pointing, a lot of stuff going on in the Democratic Party trying to figure out what exactly happened. Well, I think most Democrats know what happened. They had uh, not a great candidate, Terry McAuliffe, uh, who made a bunch of pretty big political blunders along the way and alienated voters in his state. Everyone 
outside the state try to make this a referendum between Joe Biden and Donald Trump. Uh, and the fact is, uh, Joe Biden did invest some time there campaigning for him, but not a lot. Uh, Donald Trump wanted to come in there and wrap his arms around Glenn Youngkin. So he claimed uh, that he won because of Donald Trump. But Glenn Youngkin uh, read the room and said, you know, uh, Donald Trump's not that popular in the state. Uh, he lost by 10 points, 10 points in the election to Joe Biden. Perhaps I should keep him at arm's length, which is exactly what he did. However, uh, Terry McAuliffe, the Democrat, kept trying to paint Youngkin as a Donald Trump clone. It didn't stick. Uh, there are certain things that Yunkin is. It's uh, very conservative. Uh, the the culture war things that we've seen with many conservatives, where you know they think school boards are trying to in, inoculate or inculcate their kids into critical race theory and hating themselves because they're white and they don't like the mass mandates or the vaccine mandates and uh, they're not particularly in favor of abortion. And those are the hot but and taxes they definitely they were tired of getting taxed in virginia yunkin uh played into all of that and managed to uh get a win in the state uh not a giant win but enough uh to win by a few points over mcauliffe in a state that has been democratic or gone democratic with their governors and most of the legislature and, and other top officials over the last uh, basically 10 to 20 years. So a lot of people outside of Virginia, if, if you read the political writings, are, are pointing to this as, as sort of a, a, a bellwether, kind of a you know a harbinger of, of, of the mood to come in the 2022 elections. You're from Virginia. You live there. Is that uh, a little too much looking into the numbers? Uh, well, I don't know. I you know, every, Everyone wants, you know, the pundits always like to, to say to fit everything in, into tiny little boxes, but they forget the uh, Tip O'Neill, the former House Speaker during Ronald Reagan, whose famous quote is, all politics are local. And that is indeed the case. It certainly seemed to be the case here that uh, Joe Biden didn't make a difference one way or the other. Certainly, uh, it wasn't because he passed anything that was offensive to people in in Virginia, because he hasn't managed to pass anything other than COVID relief uh, last spring. So uh, whether uh, Joe Biden passing things like extended child care or better education or better health care, if that would have helped Terry McAuliffe, maybe. Uh, but Terry McAuliffe just wasn't a fantastic candidate. He was governor in that state at one point. Uh, and because of the odd uh, term limit rules that they have in Virginia, you have to get out pretty quick once you're governor. You can only stay in office for a little while, then you have to get out. You can come back and run again, and some people have done that and won re-election, but Terry McAuliffe just seemed to be a, a particularly bad candidate for Democrats, and I'm not certain that he's the indication that all Democrats are going to fare the same way. You look at what happened in New Jersey today, and the Democrat in New Jersey eked out a win, uh, which, again, is not great for Democrats because New Jersey, especially the big population senators, senators are more Democratic than they are Republican. And the fact that it was a contest and it was that close does not bode well for Democrats, at least in New Jersey. But who knows about the rest of the country? All right. ABC's Andy Field. Thank you so much for your time and insight. Thank you. When we come back, an interview with Ben Raffensperger, the Secretary of State for Georgia during the 2020 election, and a Republican who earned the ire of former President Donald Trump. That's on the way when the Como Politicast continues in just a moment. Welcome back to the Como Politicast. I'm Jeff Pogela. Here's Como's Manda Factor. 
One year after the presidential election, Donald Trump still claims it was stolen from him. In the days after he lost to Joe Biden, Trump spoke to Georgia Secretary of State Brad Raffensperger. I just want to find 11,780 votes, which is one more that we have, because we won the state. I only need 11,000 votes. Fellas, I need 11,000 votes. Give me a break. There's nothing wrong with saying that, you know, uh, that you've recalculated. Well, Mr. President, the challenge that you have is the data you have is wrong. Secretary of State Raffensperger is with us. want to ask you what prompted you to record that phone call, and are you glad you did? Well, the call stands on its own, and people can read the transcript that's in my book with annotated comments, or they can go online just like you just did and listen to it and draw their own conclusions. But uh, we had several lawsuits from Trump campaign and other organizations, and that information is out there as part of the public record now. So I think that's a good thing. How do you characterize the state of American democracy right now? Well, it's obviously we're going through turbulent and challenging times. We live in a polarized nation. In fact, when I took office, uh, I understood that. We got we stood up a brand new system, a voting system with verifiable paper ballots. Thank goodness we did. It's because we did a 100% hand recount of last year's election, counted all 5 million ballots, and it verified two things. One, the machines did not flip the votes, and two, President Trump lost the state by about uh, 12,000 votes. And so I wrote the book, really, to get that information out there. I thought it was really important to tell my story, because that story has serious implications for our democracy. Stacey Abrams, when she lost in 2018, did not concede, still hasn't today, and she lost by 55,000 votes. And she really was questioning the legitimacy of our elections. So she really set the table for and a preview of the messaging that we saw in 2020. Voter suppression in 18, voter fraud in 2020. And both of that undermines election trust. And we need to restore that. And that's what I'm working hard to do. You're a Republican. I'm wondering, if did you do you run the Georgia Secretary of State's office as a Republican? Or should elections be run in a partisan manner based on party? As it relates to elections, we want to make sure we have fair and honest elections. Uh, yes, I'm a conservative Republican, but my job is to follow the law, follow the Constitution. We have 159 counties, 159 county election directors. I know that some are on the left side of the aisle, some are on the right side of the aisle. Some of our best election directors, I know they're on the other side of the aisle, but they don't let that interfere what they do with their elections. They just make sure we have fair and honest elections. They, they walk the line of integrity, and that's what everyone wants. Don't bring your bias into the election process because it's really an objective standard. What do the numbers show? And the numbers showed in this case, President Trump came up short. It's a pleasure to speak with you this morning. I wish we had more time. We'll have to pick up the book. I can't wait to read it. It's Integrity Counts. That's Georgia's Secretary of State and now author Brad Raffensperger. That's Como's Manda Factor. Finally this week. In the words of St. Paul, he fought the good fight and he kept the faith. Reverend Randolph Marshall Hollerith opened the memorial service to former Secretary of State Colin Powell, who also served as the nation's first black chairman of the Joint Chiefs of Staff. Powell's son, Michael, was among those honoring his late father. The example of Colin Powell does not call on us to emulate his resume, which is too formidable for mere mortals. It is to emulate his character and his example as a human being. During the memorial service of the Washington National Cathedral, the younger Powell said his dad had a genuine affection for people. COVID claimed Powell's life last month. Michael Powell said his father had a core belief. He wants to love intimately, to sacrifice self in the service of others, and to live in obedience to some transcendent trust. 
That was my father. The younger Powell said his dad was a great leader because he was a great follower and challenged those in attendance, including presidents of both parties. I've heard it asked, are we still making his kind? I believe the answer to that question is up to us. Also paying tribute, another former Secretary of State, Madeleine Albright. My heart is sad, for I have lost a friend. She noted Powell's military service. Colin Powell's legacy of service to the country he loved will long survive his passing. As well as his kindness. Beneath that glossy exterior of warrior statesman was one of the gentlest and most decent people any of us will ever meet. Colin Powell was fully vaccinated against COVID, but had a weakened immune system due to cancer. He was 84 years old. And that will do it for this episode of the Como Politicast. If you like the show, please leave a rating and a review in Apple Podcasts. And for more, be sure to check out our other shows, such as Como News This Week, Life Beat with Marina Rockinger, and much more. All are available at comonews.com slash podcasts or on your favorite podcast app. I'm Jeff Pogelup. Thank you for listening, and have a good week.